The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. So if you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 9. First book in your Bible, titled this morning's message, Bearing the Image of God. Bearing the Image of God. Um, As maybe some of you have figured out, the third Sunday in January every year is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, because this Sunday marks the anniversary every year of when the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down. Um, And so Christians have, for basically the last 50 years, marked this Sunday as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so always, um, so in my 10 years here, I've always preached some type of message uh, dealing with the sanctity of human life. And again, today's message is titled, Bearing the Image of God. Um, I am somewhat of a hobby photographer. My wife tells me I should start doing it again. I haven't been doing it for a while. And I might start it again. I really I enjoy doing it. Um, I particularly like doing landscapes uh, when just beautiful vistas. Um, if you've ever been to our home, you've probably noticed some of some of my uh, photographs are up on the wall. And we just I, I like doing that. Uh, but no matter how good a photo is, a photo is never as good as the real thing, right? A photo is, it's, it only represents the real thing. The photo is an image of the real thing. And that's the sense in which a photo then has value, right? The photo itself doesn't have value, but it represents this real thing. And therefore, the photo has value because of what it represents. This morning, we're going to be talking about another image that has value. And this image has value precisely because of what the image represents. Alright, so if you're in Genesis 9, say Amen. Amen. I knew you'd find that easily. So there we go. Genesis 9, uh, beginning with verse 1. I'll just read in verse 1 through 7 this morning. Follow along please as I read. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I, gave, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day and for your grace and kindness to us. 
I thank you, God, for the very real and true fact that we are image bearers of you. And because we're your image bearers, we bear worth, we bear dignity, we have value. So, Father, thank you for making us in your image. I pray now, Lord, as we spend just a few moments meditating on your word, that you would mold us and shape us to the men and women that you would have us be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so for those of you with a sermon notebook or taking notes otherwise, our central idea for today is that God has made human beings in His image. God has made human beings in His image. I have three points I'm going to make, but before I get into those points, just a a little bit of background material, okay? Um, In Genesis 1, God creates everything that exists. He creates the sun, the stars, and the moon. He creates the land, the sky, and the sea. He creates birds and bees and boa constrictors. And then as he prepares to finish off his creative work, he creates man in his own image. The Bible says in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It's a, it's a beautiful picture in Genesis 1 of God's idyllic creation. And everything is wonderful in God's beautiful creation for exactly one chapter. And then we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, the man and the woman whom God created in His image, they disobey God and they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And they start their family by having a couple of children, a couple of boys, Cain and Abel. And as, as those young men grow up, Cain becomes jealous of Abel and we have the first recorded murder in the history of mankind. Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. Of course, this doesn't stop the human reproductive cycle. As we get just a few chapters into the Bible, the earth is teeming with human beings and those human beings have one thing in common. In Genesis 6, we're told that the earth was corrupt. Very corrupt. And God regretted that He had even made human beings. But there was one man, this guy named Noah. And Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. And so God tells Noah to build a boat, a big boat. We call that boat the ark. Some of you have visited the life-size replica of the ark that's in Kentucky. I understand it's quite impressive. I haven't been there myself. Maybe one day I'll put that on my, put that on my bucket list uh, to see one day myself. But in the Bible, after the ark is finished, God sends a flood onto the earth to kill every living land and air creature except for those who find refuge in the ark. And so God starts over if you will. From the human species, only eight individuals survived the flood. Noah, his three sons, and their respective wives. So, four men, four women. And after roughly a year on the ark, you know, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but the floodwaters didn't disappear after 40 days. You understand that, right? So they were on the ark roughly a year. Um, The waters have dried. Noah and his family emerged from the ark, and God makes a covenant with Noah. That covenant begins in the last few verses of chapter 8. Now, we're in the first seven verses of chapter 7, but God is still in the midst of that covenant. He's, he's still blessing Noah in a, in a covenantal way. And so that's, that's where we're at this morning. The flood has just subsided. God's people, Noah and his family, have come off the, off the boat, and now God is making a covenant. And so let's take a look at those three points uh, just so you know, um, the first two points will be rather brief. 
Um, I don't want you to get your hopes up like, wow, he's going to be done before 1115. Um, it's not going to be quite that brief, um, but you will get home before the winter weather strikes this afternoon. Okay, I promise. So point number one, blessing. Blessing right off the bat. In verse 1 of chapter 9, we're told that God blesses Noah and his sons. And He commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we see that exact same commandment repeated in verse 7. To to be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Now a few minutes ago, I gave us just a very brief survey of the first few chapters of Genesis. But if we were to look in a little more detail, we'll see that, that very first, the very first command that God gives to Adam and Eve is for them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the very first command found in Genesis chapter 1. And so God now, He's doing a do-over, if you will, with Noah. He's giving them the very same command that He gave to Adam and Eve when the earth was still without sin. My point in mentioning that this morning, I believe the point of the text, is to let us know that despite mankind's fallen condition, despite our sin, God still has a plan for us. And so He blesses Noah and his family and He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. Now, beloved, here's why that's important. I want us to think about the implication of that for just one moment. Why God chose to bless Noah and his sons. Because Noah, despite him finding favor in the eyes of God, Noah is far from a perfect human being. In fact, if we were just read just a little bit later here in chapter 9, we read about Noah getting drunk. Now, not, not tipsy drunk, like, oh yeah, I'm making a little funny joke. Noah fall down, passed out drunk. Noah is not a paragon of human righteousness. He's a sinner. Just like you and I. Just like Adam and Eve. And yet, God chooses to bless Noah and his sons. Here's why that's important, beloved. I don't know about you, but I'm for one, grateful that I don't need to be perfect before I can experience the blessings of God. Amen? I am grateful for God's grace. And so we have blessing. Point number one. Point number two, dominion. Dominion. In verse two, God, excuse me, Noah and his sons are told that the fear of them and the dread of them is going to be on every living animal on the earth. Whether that animal is found in the sky, on the earth, or in the sea, the fear of dread of human beings is going to be on all those animals. And moreover, we're told that God is going to give every animal to human beings for food. Now, there's some debate about whether human beings were strictly vegetarian prior to the flood. But after the flood, there's no doubt that the menu has expanded, if you will. Um, All types of animals now are available to human beings. But even though the flesh of animals is now on the menu human beings are still given some restrictions. I want you to notice that. For example, humans are not to devour an animal in the way, say, a lion might kill an antelope. A lion will kill an antelope and he will eat the body while it's still warm with the blood in it, right? Just as a wild beast. But human beings are explicitly told we're not to eat the animal while the blood is still in the animal because the blood represents the very life of the animal. And so this is why Jews, and most of us, frankly, this is why when, when, when we kill an animal or when we go to the grocery store to buy an animal that's been killed, whatever, that animal has always been prepared for eating by first draining the blood from the animal. And so even though human beings have dominion over the animal kingdom, they don't have unrestricted dominion. 
Even, even, our, even in our dominion over the animal kingdom, we remember that we are merely exercising stewardship over God's creation. The creation rightfully belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. We are simply His stewards. Now, a couple of implications of our dominion over the animal kingdom. There, there, are, there are a lot of them, but I'm going to just share two with you this morning. First, we have dominion over the animal kingdom. It's not the other way around. It's the fear and dread of man that stands over the animal kingdom, not the reverse. And so while many of us, we might have fur babies, if you will, in our home, and my wife and I, we do, we always have throughout our marriage, our fur babies are not as important as our, as our other human beings, alright? So in other words, if your house is on fire and you have time to, you have one more trip to make into the house to make a rescue, you're going to choose to rescue your 84-year-old grandmother rather than your Yorkie. All right. Now, some of you might be, I don't know. Trust me. Okay, the, the the grandmother is more important than the dog, because human beings are more important. Second implication or application, if you will, of this dominion point. Um, this is fascinating. It's just I, I love it when something happens in um, like in culture the week that you're getting ready to preach on something. Uh, just this past week, perhaps you heard about it. for the first time in history, a man was successfully given a transplanted heart from a donor pig. Yeah, that's right. You heard it. it happened right here in Baltimore, right here um, at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. A 57-year-old man, father of two, who was going to die if he didn't get a heart transplant, was given a chance at new life. January 7th of this year, just nine days ago, when surgeons successfully gave him a genetically altered heart from a pig. Now, you might know for, for many years already, doctors have been using pig um, valves, pig heart valves um, in human beings. But this is the first time in history that the entire organ uh, was used. And some of you might wonder, why, why a pig heart? Um, that that kind of crossed my mind as well. And I'm not a doctor. Well, I am a doctor, but I'm not that kind of doctor. Um, and so the best, the best way I understand it is that um, as far as the pig's anatomy, the size of a pig, the weight of the pig, the scale of the heart, it roughly mirrors than the size of human beings. And so their hearts are roughly have the same capacity as a human heart. So that's why they use pigs. Now, of course, the pig had to sacrifice his life in order for this surgery to take place, right? And so some animal lovers might think, you know, cry foul that doctors would kill one animal in order to save another animal. But beloved, human beings aren't animals. Human beings are categorically different than animals. Human beings, unlike pigs or dogs or cats or any other living animal, human beings are created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, we have dominion over the animal kingdom. And that dominion doesn't mean then that we should needlessly slaughter animals, but it does mean that the life of a human being is worth more than the life of any animal. Human beings have dominion over the animal kingdom, which takes us now to point three. I told you the first two would be rather quick. This one's third one's not super long. Again, we'll be home in plenty of time before the winter storm. While I'm on that, by the way, if any of you, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but you know, with a winter storm on the way, I know sometimes people, uh, you're not as prepared. Maybe you're elderly. You can't do shoveling of snow or what. Um, if you need help, please contact the church. We'd love to. You know, I'm, I can't say that I'm going to be there for every. You know, I can't go out and shovel everybody's snow, uh, but. We'd love to be able to help out. If, if, like, if you're in a situation where you can't uh, do something, um, I can certainly make a few phone calls and we can get people to your house to help you, okay? Um, 
because you're an image bearer, right? And so you need help, and we'll help you. Point number three, significance. Significance. So we've, we've already seen that after the flood, humans are now they're allowed to kill animals and use them for food or other beneficial purposes. But what we're about to see is, again, the same thing can't be said in reverse. If an animal or if another person kills a human being, then that animal or that person who did the killing must die. Look with me at verse 5. It's right there, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, you know, it's clear, by the way, from the context here, we're talking about the lifeblood of a human being, right? And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. But why is God making this distinction between animals and human beings? And I've already said it multiple times, in this, but just so you see that I'm not making this up and saying, you know, I've got this little hobby horse that I want to ride this morning. Look at verse 6. It's as clear as day. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, so because, this is why, for God made man in his own image. And so let's recall, way back in the beginning of Genesis, God created man and woman in his own image. Now, but between that time of creation and Noah's time, the fall of mankind, sin enters into the world, right? So a lot of things happen. Humans, humans are now sinners. And so some have tried to argue that the fall of man or sin has eviscerated the image of God in man. That is, we are, we no longer, the, the, the fall was so catastrophic that humankind, that man, mankind, we no longer even bear the image of God. So what some have tried to argue, beloved, that claim is false. It's not true. We are still image bearers of God. Now, I do believe the fall that is sin in this world, it has damaged the image of God in man. But we're still creatures who are created in the image of God. And here's why that's important. Let me explain. Because of sin, that is both corporate sin and our own individual sin, because of sin, we no longer reflect the image of God the way we should. It's part of what it means to be a sinner, by the way. When we sin, at that moment, we are not accurately reflecting the true image of God. Right? When we sin, at that moment, we're saying something false about God. We're denying God in that moment. Now, perhaps you've heard the saying, you know, to err is human, to forgive, divine. There you go. It's a popular euphemism. But that phrase, to err is human, is not biblical. It's not. In, in fact, it's contrary to the Bible. Because when somebody says to err is human, what they're saying is the essence of what it is. To, to err is what it means to be a human being. To sin is what it means to be a human being. But if the essence of what it is to be a human being is to sin, then follow this, then Jesus Himself wasn't a human being. Jesus Himself never took on human flesh if what it means to be a human being is to sin. Beloved, you don't want to go there. Trust me on this. We don't want to go there. We don't, we don't want to be in the place where what we argue is that Jesus really wasn't a human being. Because Jesus Himself was God, and He was man, or He is God, and He is man. And here's why that's important. 
Because if, if Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, then He couldn't have saved us from our sin. Because only God is capable of paying that type of price and only man deserves to pay that type of price. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, Jesus is the only one who is able to pay that price. I, could go, I can go on and on about that, beloved. There are books written just about that topic, but I, that's not the point of the sermon this morning, but I do want it. It's super, super important. I want it, so let's get back to the image of God and man. Sin damages the image of God in human beings, but it doesn't destroy it. And so we're still image bearers, even though we're sinners. All right? So our sin, so even the worst of sinners in this world, and by the way, Paul called himself the worst of sinners, so probably got some candidates in this room, myself included. To be the worst of sinners in this world, all of us are image bearers. And this is why even after multiple generations had passed from creation until God gets to Noah, God tells Noah that the image of God is still persisting in mankind. It's why God tells Noah that whoever sheds the, a human being's blood by their blood, or rather their blood will also be shed by other human beings because they're created in the image of God. Now, I want to make four contemporary applications about what it means to be an image bearer of God. So four applications from this text. And the first one is most closely related to our text. It's, it's, it's the idea of capital punishment. Uh, capital punishment, also known as the death penalty. Um, there are oftentimes in our country um, vigorous cultural debates about whether the death penalty is appropriate or not. In fact, 22 states plus Washington, D.C. have already abolished the death penalty. Uh, there are another additional three states that have governor-imposed moratoriums on the death penalty. So the governor that, that in office right now says we're not, we're not doing the death penalty. Uh, so that means exactly half of our United States aren't really united on this particular issue of the death penalty. And beloved, I want you to know there, there can be persuasive arguments mustered against the death penalty. For example... Why do, why do blacks make up only about 12% of the U.S. population, but they make up over 40% of those who are currently on death row? It's a fair question to ask. Now, you might have this answer or that answer, but it's a fair question to ask. Another argument against the death penalty is the fact that people who can't afford a really good lawyer are more likely to get sentenced to death. In other words, if, if you're rich and you can afford the very best lawyers that money can buy, then it's very, very, very unlikely that you will ever face the death penalty. Beloved, those are good, sound, solid arguments against the death penalty, or, or should I say, against how the death penalty is administered in our country. Because it really, it, right, it shouldn't matter how much money we have. If, if, we, if we kill somebody in cold blood, we should face the same penalty that a poor person would face for killing somebody in cold blood. It should be the same for the crime. But the idea here, I want you to understand this, the idea of the death penalty itself is absolutely biblical. The idea of the death penalty comes straight out of our text this morning. The death penalty says that when somebody murders an image bearer of God, that murderer is to be put to death by other image bearers of God. It's a way of actually affirming the sanctity and value of human life. To say, if you take somebody else's life, it, you're going to have to forfeit your own. 
That's how much that life is worth. <coughs> second, second application. We have the issue of abortion. <coughs> that is the taking of human life while it's still in its mother's womb. For the first time in over a generation, the Supreme Court has heard oral arguments for a case that I'm praying will overturn the infamously, infamously bad decision that we know as Roe v. Wade. Um, we'll likely know the results of the court's decision sometime in June of this year is when they announce their major uh, findings. Now, just by, by the way, to be clear, if the Roe decision is overturned, it won't mean that abortions all across the country will be illegal like in a moment. That's not what it means. All that will happen if Roe is overturned is that the decision on abortion will go back down to the state level again. And so some states will then work hard to protect abortion rights. Other states will work hard to protect the lives of babies. Okay. But let me be absolutely clear. Both the Bible and modern science have demonstrated beyond a doubt that what is in fact in the mother's womb is a human being. It's not a clump of fetal tissue. It's a human being. That baby has its own DNA, has its own blood type, has its own heart that's pumping its own blood throughout its body. It feels pain. It has a brain. It's a human being. It's just a small human being. But it's a human being nonetheless. And since it's a human being, it's been created in the image of God and it deserves dignity and respect. It deserves life. Yet in some communities, the most dangerous place for a baby to be is in its mother's womb. There are some communities across our country where there are thousands more pregnancies that end in abortion rather than end in live birth. Beloved, it ought not to be so. Those babies and those women, those mothers need to be protected. And just by the way, if you're a woman who's had an abortion or if you're a man who's coerced and urged your girlfriend or wife to have an abortion, I want you to know that I don't stand here today to condemn you and you don't have to live with the guilt and shame of that. There is grace at the cross for that. But abortion itself is wrong. It's a moral evil that violates the image of God in man. Third issue. As we have the issue, and some of you, this might be a new concept for some of you, it's the idea of human trafficking. Human trafficking is often, not always in the form of human sex trafficking. Across the globe, there are over 25 million people who are trafficked as products, if you will, across the world. Many of them are modern-day slaves. And yes, beloved, that still absolutely exists in our world. Modern-day slaves, people who are sold and used as property. And many of them are used in the commercial sex industry. If you've given any thought to sex trafficking, perhaps you think of sex trafficking, well, that's something that happens in these countries like Pakistan or India or Thailand. And, and those countries do have some notorious sex trafficking industries. But sex trafficking is also a major problem right here in the United States of America. It's a major problem right here. January, by the way, is, uh, for those of you who didn't know, um, is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. I receive regular emails from an organization <coughs> excuse me, that fights uh, human trafficking 
in general and human sex trafficking in particular. And just this past week, a church member sent me an email um, about a documentary film called Blind Eyes Open, The Truth About Sex Trafficking in America. Uh, you can find the video yourself on Amazon. It's available for purchase on Amazon. I haven't watched the video. I just purchased it, uh, but I plan on watching it. Uh, after I watch it, I'll tell you. I'll give it my Siskel and Eber thumbs up. Or uh, I, I anticipate it's going to be a good. It's made by a Christian group, um, and so it's going to approach it from a Christian topic. Um, obviously, it, for you parents out here with young children, you want to use some discretion. It, it, the, the topic itself is sensitive, um, and so exercise caution who's watching it with you. But my point is, those individuals who are being trafficked, whether it's sex trafficking or any other type of trafficking, they are men and women and sadly sometimes and far too often boys and girls who are being trafficked. Men and women, boys and girls who have been created in the image of God, they weren't made to be used that way. And even if they are, you say, well, what about those who are of age or what about those who are quote-unquote consenting? Consenting is not the Holy Grail. They were not made to be used that way. They are image bearers of Almighty God. And as Christians, we need to recognize that that is a dark stain on our culture that we would use human beings for trafficking or for sex trafficking, what have you, we would use other image bearers that way. Shame on us. Not, not that we're doing, but shame on us that we don't care enough to try to put an end to this. So that's the third point of application. Fourth point of application, finally, um, we have the issue of immigrants or immigration. Now this morning I'm not going to be making any attempt to, if, if you will, give you a Christian immigration policy for our country. That, that is not my goal. In fact, it's well beyond my expertise. I just want to speak of what the Bible says. All right? that, I do have expertise in the Bible. I know what the Bible says. And beloved, the Bible has a lot to say about immigrants. One of the words that the Bible uses for immigrants, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, is the word sojourner. Um, a sojourner is somebody who lives and works either temporarily or permanently in an area or in a land that is not their own. In the New Testament, Christians are called sojourners in this world. That is, this world is not our permanent home. We're just passing through. We're on our way to the heavenly city. We're passing through. So if you're, you're, you're a Christian, congratulations. You are a sojourner. You're, you're an immigrant right now in this country. Where, or wherever you live, you're an immigrant. But there's also a very real sense in which people are sojourners, meaning that they live in a country that is not their own. They live in a country different from their birth country. Now, we typically, we typically we don't call them sojourners. We call them immigrants. And the Bible expressly teaches that the people of God are to treat sojourners or immigrants. We're to treat them well. I'm not going to read all these references, but just listen. Here's a few of them. You can look them up for yourself. Exodus 22.21, Exodus 23.9, Leviticus 19.33 and 34, Leviticus 25.35-37, Deuteronomy 10.17-19, 26.16, 24.14-15, and verse 17, and Deuteronomy 27.19, Psalm 146.9, Jeremiah 7.6, Jeremiah 22.3, Ezekiel 47, verses 22 and 23, Zechariah uh, chapter 7, verse 9, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. 
Okay, I know I went through those super fast. I did that. My point is simply to let you know this idea of immigrants and how we treat immigrants. It's not like this, well, this obscure verse that's found in one book of the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about it. If, you, you know, if you're thinking, I was trying to keep notes, I couldn't keep up with you fast, send me an email. John mentioned our Brian at phbc.com, and I will send you all of those references. You can look them up for yourself. Glad to share them with you. All of that is to say, again, the Bible doesn't give us a national immigration policy. So Christians, we might, we might agree or disagree um, about you know, how many immigrants we should allow in our country and, and what all these things. We can, we can agree and disagree on those things. But the Bible does tell us this. Beloved, they are all human beings. They're human beings. And the way sometimes I hear Christians, not, not I, praise God, I haven't heard it from you, but I've, I've heard this in national media and I've heard it in, in elsewhere. People who call themselves by the name of Christ, the way they talk about immigrants is shameful. It's shameful. They are men and women, boys and girls, created in the image of God. And therefore they have dignity and they have worth. And we need to treat them as such. Now, those are just four contemporary issues that have impacted. There, there, I could give you probably a dozen more ideas that would impact the, the image of God. But my point is to say this is a very real and a very pressing and applicable issue that faces us as we interact with other human beings. No matter who those human beings are, to recognize them as image bearers. So if you're talking to somebody, maybe it's a, of a different political persuasion to you. Sometimes we can get, those conversations get hot real fast. Different people, they have different ideas on you. Know, masks, vaccinations, whatever. Those conversations get hot real fast. But recognize that the person you're talking to, and by the way, I would include that, whether it's this kind of talking or this kind of talking, right? Texting and, um, and interacting online. Um, that The person on the other end is an image bearer. And we need to respect them as such. Even if they don't do that to us, we're called to live by a higher standard. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your grace and Your kindness to us. And I thank You, Lord Jesus, that we've been made in the image and likeness of God. And as such, we have dignity and we have worth and we demand respect. And not only do we do that, but every human being we come into contact with has that same dignity, worth, and respect. And so help us to, to, to love others well, um, to respect them, even if we disagree uh, with a position they have, even if their position is anti-Christian, anti-God. They're nevertheless an image bearer of yours. And so we can disagree with their position. We can disagree with their philosophy. Even vehemently so, disagree with their position while still respecting the person. And so help us learn to live that way in this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So benediction scripture was from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon and please get home as quick as you can. The, the weather is supposed to start in the early afternoon and if you need any help, let us know. God bless you. Take care. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.